We're going to be in Psalm 19, which I believe in the Pew Bibles is page 456. 456. I will uh, read the text and then give you a little bit of a heads up of where we're going to go, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. So, Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19. David is the author. And he has a goal, but of course this is poetry, and so... We have to dig a little deeper than we normally would if you're anything like I am. I'm not much of a poet. And this is an interesting text. There seems to be this strange divide that takes place halfway through. And the way that I've decided to handle the text is I've got two questions that I want to walk through with you as I ask them of the text myself and explored. And then I've got some implications that flow out of that. So one question is, what is David trying to convey with his poetic imagery. Some of it's going to be lost on us if we're not people who routinely read poetry. I'm not one of those people. Perhaps you're not. And so what's he trying to show us? What is he trying to paint for us? What picture or what scene is he trying to develop? The second question is, how do the parts relate to one another? Because there seems to be this disjointedness, this first half verses one through six, and then there's this split that takes place in seven, and then how does he end up in verse 12 all of a sudden talking about errors and sins and faults? What's going on there? 
But before we get there, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a story about myself. Uh, I took a trip in 2009 to Algonquin Provincial Park. So Toronto is right down there just above Lake, one of the lakes. I don't, I don't know my lakes that well. Ontario, there we go. Okay, and Huron. And north of there, maybe four hours or so, is Algonquin Provincial Park. It is a beautiful beautiful place. And what I did there was a wilderness development class. It was all about leadership and figuring out how to deal with people in the midst of strange circumstances. And the reason that the circumstances were so strange is that we were there in May. And uh, that far north in Canada in May is an interesting time of year. The frost has just left at various places while we were out and about in the wilderness. There was still snow on the ground. Uh, There were black flies. And so we're like right in this beautiful time period where the water is still freezing cold, borderline frozen, but then that's the first part of the week, and then the second half of the week, then you have black flies, and so you get to experience wearing a head net and eating your food by sticking it underneath every single bite, because I don't know if you've ever been bitten by black flies, it's obnoxious, and there are billions of them, and it just gets worse and worse from day to day. So I'm up in Canada, and one of the things that drew me to the class was that The man who told me about it sold it to me this way. He said, when you go to Canada, when you're out in the wilderness, you can't fake who you are. Who you are comes out. Day one, day two, you can do a pretty good job of of guarding who you really are inside. Saturday and Sunday, we would do classes in a classroom setting, and then at nighttime, we would sleep outside. And then Monday, we would head out into the wilderness. And Algonquin Provincial Park looks small here, but it's pretty sizable. We did, I think, around... 20 miles in, and then 20 miles back out. And you're, you're nowhere near anything. If something happens, you have to be life-lighted out. You carry GPS units with you, and you're portaging. I don't know if there's any people here who know it as portage, but the, the word is portage, as they told me. It's got to have the French pronunciation. So we were portaging, and, and the way that we got around was 60 pounds of backpack on you, and then 70 pounds of canoe on you. Now, that's what I weigh. (laughs) Actually, that's slightly more than what I weigh. And and so, for a lot of people, that's a really difficult thing to do. And the yokes on those canoes, there's just no comfortable way to wear them. Some people would have really nice ones that are formed to your back straps, but it just doesn't work out that way. After you carry a 70-pound canoe a thousand yards, your back is killing you and your neck is hurting. And after the black flies are all over you and and after you're going waist deep into the water every 10 minutes to portage, the real you comes out. And that was what he said. No masks, um, no crutches, whatever whatever you try to do to hide who you really are, it it comes out. So there'd be times where we were walking, portaging, and and, uh, most of the time I would prefer to do the canoe by myself because it was easier that way. Um, and then you'd hand it off, and the next person would do the portage, and they would hit a stump and fall over, and thankfully not hit themselves in a really bad way on a stump uh, when they fell, but there'd be some expletives that would come out of 50- and 60-year-old Christian men's mouths who were elders in their churches. Um, the People would get really impatient really quickly if, like, for instance, dinner wasn't ready on time, or if we had to wake up and things weren't going um, as planned. So, for instance, one of the things that happened was on Tuesday, it rained all day long. 
all day long. I'm wearing a $2.38 poncho that I got from Walmart. That was my source of waterproofing because I didn't have a waterproof jacket. I, I named it Poncho Vita because it brought life to me. Uh, it just rained all day long on Tuesday, but it was really rather serene and beautiful. But then Thursday came, and Thursday we went the opposite direction. On Tuesday, we were going from west to east, and on Thursday, we were going from east to west. Well, there was a wonderful wind that came on Thursday that kept the black flies at bay for the first half of the day. Unfortunately, it was a steady 15 miles an hour plus, and we were on a lake that was over three miles long that went from east to west. And it was just like a chute for the wind to go down. And we battled over 16 hours of canoeing. What we had accomplished in less than four hours on Tuesday, we didn't accomplish in those 16 hours. We had to cut it short. I don't know if you've ever been in a canoe when there are white caps on a lake, when the water is so cold that if you go in, there's a good possibility you're going to have hypothermia. It was gut-wrenching. It was nerve-wracking. It was physically exhausting. All that to say, it brought out who I was. And that really attracted me. I like the rawness of that. That's what David's talking about in Psalm 19. And I can't take you to Canada. It's uh, not really a good time of year to go there right now. But 10 years before I went there, David Powlison wrote an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and he called that article X-Ray Questions, Drawing Out the Whys and the Wherefores of Human Behavior. And in this article, what he does is he talks about how we can ask good questions that help us to get at the core of who we are, to not fake ourselves out, to be real with ourselves. Questions like, where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? Do you run to God for comfort and safety, or do you run to something else? What do you trust? Do you functionally rest in the Lord? Do you find your sense of well-being in His presence and promises? Or do you rest in something or someone else? How do you define who you are? Serious questions for a Sunday morning. Sorry, but not sorry to make you work a little bit mentally there. Let me ask you an easier one. What do you think of poetry? Do you have night terrors when you think about second grade, learning about haikus, Stanzas, I do. Poetry, like I said, is not my thing. But what if we could be honest about how we feel about God in the same way that we're honest about something like poetry or cilantro or broccoli? What if we were real with ourselves? Whether you're here for the first time or whether you've been here for 60 years, what if in this moment, what if you're real with yourself? What if you go to Psalm 19, look at what David found as he was real with himself, and what if you allow yourself to think through these questions? What am I running to for safety, for security? Ultimately, what do I worship? Allow yourself to go there. Let's pray. God, show us your glory. Show us your goodness. Show us that you care for us. Show us your beauty and your holiness. Care for us, God, in this moment.
sometimes it's really frightening to be real with ourselves. We, I mean, if I were a first-time visitor, that'd be nerve-wracking. If I were here for 60 years, I've, I've got 60 years of who I've made myself out to be, and maybe that's not who I am. Maybe who I am is, is uh, something different. Maybe I put on a show more often than not. God, I know that's true for me a lot of times. Would you help us to break through that? Show us who you are, because that's the only thing that's greater than all of our other desires, is, is having our desires fulfilled in you. Do that for us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. So, question number one. What is David trying to convey with this poetic imagery of his? I've got four points. I'm going to put them all up there for you. I'm not sure if you're a, a writer. Oops, sorry. Okay, one disappeared. I have three points for you. So, number one, God is glorious and creation is not silent about it. He starts off, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night, knowledge is revealed. The heavens are shouting. Sometimes it's hard for us to see that because we have our our devices that we're always looking at. But heaven is, the heavens, they're glorious, they're beautiful, they're they're awe-inspiring. Take a moment and think about where you like to go for vacation. Not like the Branson-type places or the Vegas-type places, but more like Aruba or maybe the hills of France, Mediterranean Sea, Italy, New Zealand, Hawaii, Ireland. Think of these places that we go to. There's something about creation, isn't there? Or how about maybe there's some family campers here. We go away from the city, we disconnect from electronics, and we're out where there really aren't that many lights and there aren't a lot of creature comforts, and yet for some reason to us, that is life-giving. There's something about it that, that pours into us in a way we don't understand. I mean, think of nature shows. PBS's nature has been running for 37 seasons. When I was a little boy, I used to love to watch Marty Stauffer's Wild America. I would watch it with my dad every single week. In fact, with our girls during the wintertime, we have nature night. Usually on Sunday night or on Monday night, we'll watch a nature show. Sometimes we watch Coyote Peterson's Brave Wilderness, if anybody out there knows Coyote Peterson. There's something about beauty and creation that speaks to us in deep and profound ways. When we see these landscapes, it hurts us. It, like deep inside, it affects us. That's because it's speaking about God. It is shouting in ways loudly how good he is. But interestingly, it doesn't come audibly. Do you see the play on words? Heavens declare, sky proclaims, pours out speech, reveals knowledge. Skip verse 3. Voice goes out, words to the end. But verse 3 lets us know that even though he's saying with all these words, things that would make us think that it's audible, it's not audible. There is no speech, nor are there words. Actually, the NASB says it best. Their voice is not heard. It's not something that we hear. 
There aren't people that miss out on this. If you're blind, you don't miss out on beholding God's glory because it's not limited to what we can see. If you're deaf, you don't miss out on beholding God's glory because it's not about just what we hear. It's when we interact with other people. It's through our sense of touch. It's through tasting things. We, we get glimpses of God's glory in his creation. Second point is that the sound reaches everyone And David starts big, the heavens declare, and then he he zooms in and he focuses on the sun. And he says, okay, the sun is going to be my main character. And they're going to drive, he's going to drive this point home. He says, the sun comes out day after day. In fact, it does its thing with so much joy that it's like a strong man running. Watched the video of Usain Bolt set his 9.58 second, 100 mile dash world record from 2009 yesterday. It it was just so easy looking for him. It was a strong man running his course with joy. That's what David says the sun is like. But then he zeroes in and he says, it goes from one side, circuit all the way to the other, and nothing is hidden from its reaches, from its heat. It, It goes everywhere. So the sound that we can't hear, it goes everywhere. And he uses two words, earth and world. Like God created the heavens and the earth, and God so loved the world. Or everything that God has created and all the places that man resides. So this is, this is a voice that's not audible that goes out to everybody. And the third thing comes from the second half, starting in verse 7, that God's law is valuable. I'm going to walk through these quickly. You don't have to write this stuff down. But he basically says, look at the law like you would a diamond. You'd hold it up. And each of the different facets take part of the light spectrum and show you something different. And so he's just describing the same thing in multiple different terms. He says the law, which literally is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as they would have had it at that time, it was very limited. He's writing the Psalms, so they don't even have the Psalms of the prophets. He says it's perfect. It has no defect. He says the testimony, another way to look at it. These are like instructions giving with warning. These instructions, they're trustworthy. Then he turns it again and he says, these precepts, principles that are given with obedience, like what we teach our children, precepts, that these, they're right. They're straight. They're not crooked. If you follow, it will go well with you. Or commandments, like something given to a subordinate. When you work in the secular work environment, always have somebody above you on the ladder. Sometimes they give you commands and you're not quite sure. Am I breaking a law when I do this? Am I fudging the lines a little bit? Am I skirting just outside of where I'm supposed to be? But David says that God's law, it's not like that. When he gives you a command, it's pure, it's clean, it's right. He says the fear of the Lord, it gives wisdom like Proverbs talks about. And the rules of the Lord or the judgments that he makes, those are right. He's never going to come to you and say, you know, I'm sorry, Michael, a couple weeks ago I made a wrong judgment. I was afraid of what somebody else was going to think about me. And so I did the wrong thing and you have to suffer because of that. I'm sorry. Or he's never going to say, you know, I didn't have all the information that I needed in order to make that call. I have it now, so please forgive me. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I know, I get it. 
That's not God's MO. He doesn't do that. What he says is just and right. It's always good. So what David is trying to do for us in Psalm 19 is he's trying to talk about this God of his that he sees and that he knows. How do these three parts of the psalm fit together? I'm splitting it into three parts. First chunk is one through seven, or sorry, one through six. Next chunk is seven through 11, and then there's 12 and 13. So why is there this strange divide between one through six and seven through 11? Seems disjointed, as I've said. There's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. David is making a comparison. He is taking creation and talking about how it reveals who God is, and then he's also taking the law and talking about how it reveals who God is. And he does this by means, to me, of two main comparisons and two main contrasts. The first comparison is just a nice little clue that he provides, the word hidden. It shows up in verse 6, and it shows up in verse 12. There's a link that's taking place there. Hopefully the idea will become more clear as we walk through this. It's like he's saying, the sun exposes God's glory, and it's so far-reaching that nothing is hidden from its heat, its heat being an extension of what it is. Also, the law is far-reaching, and nothing is hidden from its exposure or its heat. And the son is dealing with the external, and David says that the law is dealing with the internal, and he goes there in verses 12 and 13. The law exposing sin is not a strange concept. It's in Romans, it's in Galatians, it's in Ephesians, it's basically in every book of the New Testament. This is what the law does. It shows us that we have done wrong. But there's another connection. It's outside of Psalm 19. Maybe you picked up on it. In fact, if you have the King James Version, perhaps it's much more abundantly clear to you than to the rest of us. That's because verse 1 in the King James says that the firmament proclaims or showeth his handiwork. Not a word that we use very often anymore, firmament. It also shows up in Genesis 1, where God created the heavens and the earth. And then he created an expanse above and below, and there was a firmament. David actually uses six words from the Genesis narrative, like the same exact words as he's writing Psalm. It's like he's got the Torah open before him, and he says, oh, look at that, that's great. That's fantastic imagery for me to use. And he says, what I'm trying to show is that just like God spoke and creation came into being, God spoke and his word came into being. He's trying to link the creation, and he's trying to link the law and show that they both do the same thing. They reveal God's glory. How about the contrasts? This one's slightly more nuanced. The words that are used to identify God are different in the first half than they are in the second. He's, he's kind of impersonal in the first half. It says, the heavens declare the glory of El. Simplest phrase or term for who God is. It's like if we have the word God show up somewhere, the context decides whether we, it's, we put it as uppercase or lowercase. 
That's all it is. It's a very simple L. And there's two other personal pronouns that are there. His handiwork, and then he has set a tent for the sun. But then as soon as we get to verse 7, it changes. The diminutive, capital L-O-R-D, always means Yahweh. And Yahweh is the covenant name of God that he gave to Moses. When Moses was just about to go and speak with Pharaoh and was scared out of his mind, and he said, who am I supposed to say is sending me? And God said, I am who I am. And that's how we put this L-O-R-D, Yahweh. And he says it seven times, Yahweh. This is the revelation of this personal God. Think back to when you were a kid, when you heard about one of your daddy's coworkers, Mr. Johnson or Mr. So-and-so, and you kind of knew about this person, but not really. He was just this name and character that was talked about around the dinner table. But then one day, you meet him, and he comes up to you, and he says, hi, my name's Jim. Now he's known to you. He's revealed his first name. He's given you permission to communicate with him on a first name basis. And he said, this is, this is part of who I am. It's like David is saying, yeah, creation displays God's glory, but it's just a God's glory. But the law, the law shows God. It reveals Yahweh to us. Finally, the Second example is the power. I'm sorry, I'm one behind here. It's the, the power of um, revelation. So this is the second contrast, and then we'll go to the second part that's there, 12 through 14. The heavens merely declare the glory of God. And I don't mean to say that simply, but that's all they do. They just declare the glory of God. And again in verse 7, the law revives the soul. We're talking about a monumental difference in power. We're talking about substantial changes in perspective. Yes, the heavens declare, but the law, it revives the soul. So what do we do with the ending? We've got creation and we've got the law. And how does he get to 12? Who can discern his errors? Well, like I already mentioned, we'll go more in depth. He looks into the law And he finds that it demands things of him and that he's not able to provide what it demands. And he actually extends a little bit of grace to himself. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Like, yeah, I get it. There are things I do that aren't right, but I don't even know that I'm doing them. But then he also says, but there are things that I know are wrong. I know I shouldn't do them. And I voluntarily choose to do them. And the law shows these things to David, he looks in it and he sees that he's not doing the things that he ought to be doing when he's supposed to be doing them. So the first section is about creation. The second section is about the law. And the last little bit there is, is David pleading once he finds out what the law has shown. God, would you make me clean? Would you be the one that changes me? Would you be my redeemer? little bit that looks forward to the cross. So, what are some implications? I've got five implications for you. God, the greatest entity in all existence, 
is beautiful and he is glorious. If creation is glorious and its job is to speak to the glory of God, how much more glorious must he be than creation? All the billions of star clusters out there. And all that does is that just says a word about who he is. Glorious. All that speaks to him. Don't let this go by you. Don't waste your time staring at screens. We took a trip to Florida a couple weeks ago to go visit my mom. And there was a woman sitting on the aisle across from me, in the seat in the aisle across from me. And she just stared at her iPad the whole trip. And she played Candy Crush. 60 plus years old. Now, maybe that was the time for her to relax. I'm, I'm not trying to say that what she did was bad. But, but that's, that's a significant draw. Almost everybody, whenever you go on an airplane, they pull out their device. When you sit down, I was sitting next to one of my daughters, and I said, she was bored. I said, you know, we're here at the airport. Let's look at people. We looked around. Cell phone, computer, cell phone, iPad. It, it was just all kinds of staring at these things that we have made. We're so amazed by what we have made. And we're losing out that we can look at what God has made and we can experience it. Non-Christians don't miss this. As in, not if you're not a Christian, don't miss this. But as in, people who are not Christians, they let it affect them in deep ways. Here's Henry David Thoreau. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Henry David Thoreau did not worship Jesus, but Henry David Thoreau was captivated by God's glory. That was a grace of God to show him that and for him to put it so eloquently into words. Don't miss out on the glory that you can behold of who God is in creation. Second, God is worth pursuing above all other pursuits. Several weeks back, I preached on a psalm where we talked a lot about the suffering that David had gone through. But what if we look at things differently and we look at Psalm 19 through the lens of the things that David experienced that were pretty amazing? King, anointed by a prophet, mighty warrior, commander of 40 men, commander of an army, best friends with the king's son, married to a beautiful woman, or to a beautiful woman, also married to beautiful women, not that that's good, but that was what he experienced. 
He was promised a son who would be a king after him. Not a lot of men in that age were promised that. Not only that, he was promised a son who would rule forever. It's fair to say that normalness or normalcy and mundaneness were not part of a large chunk of David's life. In fact, in just the same way that David probably experienced more suffering than most of the people collectively combined have experienced, I will say I would highly doubt that if we were to put all of our collective awesome experiences for all of our lives in this room together today, they wouldn't go past the crazy things that David has done. I mean, really all we have to do is say slay the giant and then that would kind of rule most of us out, right? But... He says that greatest riches are found in God. He says that greatest satisfaction is found in God. Verse 10, more to be desired are the words of God than much fine gold, like billions of dollars. And fine just means it's gone through the crucible, it's been burned, there's no impurities, it's the real deal. And sweeter also than honey. And this misses or flies by us. We, We don't get this, because we can go to Aldi, the cheapo store, and we can go get a pineapple for like a buck 22, and that flew in from Hawaii a couple days before that, or wherever it came from. We have access to so much wonderful stuff so quickly that we go, yeah, honey, no big deal. I mean, if you've been to the place down the street, their honey is awesome, not only that, but it really helps out with allergies at the right time of year. But David, David lives in an arid place, and only king's get to enjoy honey. I saw a video several months back of some men who worked on a a cocoa bean farm. And um, in this video, they were trying to show that there are people that work in places who, what they do, we don't understand. But further, what we enjoy, the fruits of their labor, we take for granted. Because a man who had been chopping down cocoa beans um, from the stalks for the greater part of his life, 20, 30 plus years, he'd never tasted chocolate. And the man who was doing this video had brought one of the chocolate bars that came from the farm where this man worked and gave him a bite of chocolate. And this man was like, I suddenly get why people are crazy about this stuff. To him, it was just this bitter bean that didn't taste very good, but he got to see it. David, taking all of his experience to, experiences together, he says, God has more pleasure than the best thing I can think of. Honey. He's better. We should live in light of this, but we have to be honest with ourselves. A lot of times we don't. Don't lie to yourself. Don't shy away from the fact that you are actively worshiping on a day-to-day basis, and a lot of times... The worship is as simple as a bag of potato chips because you had a hard day at work or as bad as you feel like feeding your flesh and doing things that would probably get you in serious trouble if others knew. But don't run from that. Allow that to inform what you know about God and redirect how you worship. David did that. He found that as he looked into the law, he saw his errors and his sins. Fourth, we get the benefit of seeing that there's actually another step in this picture or painting that David's made. There's creation, which is pretty fantastic. 
There's the law, which is even better. And then there's Jesus. And we get to see God in the flesh, like John 1 talked about. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. I had never thought through that concept until I put a canoe on my shoulders. And his yoke is easy. And his burden, it's light. One of the guys in Canada, one of the men leading this organization called uh, Wild Wilderness Institute for Leadership Development, Dwight is his name. Uh, Dwight's been doing this for about 40 years. And Dwight has a carbon fiber canoe. So we all have these Royal X canoes, which are usually around 70 or 80 pounds. And there's really no simple way to get a canoe on your body. Uh, you get in the water, you grab the gunnels, you put it up, up on your knees, and then you grab on either side of the yoke and you just lift that puppy up and go for it. And it's backbreaking and it hurts. And we saw a number of people throughout the week lift it up and have it come smashing down on top of their heads. 70, 80 pounds. Dwight's was carbon fiber. And you could, with Dwight's canoe, you could pick it up with one hand as long as you took into effect, uh, into effect the, the water. Uh, what's the word? Somebody help me. Yeah, the suction from water. There's a specific word I'm, I'm not getting. Um, you could lift it up with one hand and put it on top of your shoulders because it, it weighed less than 30 pounds. I think it was like 26 or 27 pounds. Like his yoke is easy. It wasn't fair. He would sit down in the canoe because they were two-person canoes. He would sit down in the canoe. His canoe was so light it would go like that. And that's not an exaggeration because there just wasn't enough weight. You'd have to have another person get in in order for it to be flat. But, but you, you and I don't look at Jesus that way, do we? We see these laws and these precepts and these commandments and we think yoke of burden, 80, 90, 100 pound, 17, 18, 19 foot canoe. We don't want that from you, God. And yet Jesus showed us that, that we're misunderstanding his intentions when we look at his yoke as something other than easy and his burden as something other than light. And so we need to see the word as David did. There's a, a cool little nugget that's dropped in Psalm 19. I don't think it was David's goal to do it. You don't find them very often. This one's not a result of my studies. I got it from somebody else, actually. The gentleman's name is Mike Bullmore, and Mike Bullmore is at Crossway Community Church, which is over by, you know, in between Milwaukee and Chicago. And he has a wonderful session that he gives that uh, is called Cultivating a Fruitful Life in the Word. I highly recommend that you listen to it. And in there, he tells this story, so I'm borrowing from him. So the nugget that we find in Psalm 19, it's so beautiful, but I have to go back to 1 Samuel, so we'll end here. Thank you for your patience. Jonathan, son of Saul, with his armor bearer one day, wakes up. Crazy idea. Hey, armor bearer, why don't we go over there to that garrison of Philistines 
and let's go attack them. And you and I can create a diversion and that'll create trouble for the, the Philistines. And then that diversion will then enable my father and the group of men that he's camped with to go and attack a different way. Uh, and that'll be a really good help for him, for him. And then he'll succeed. Armor bearer. Oh, you mean the men over there, two miles away, with a gorge that's a thousand foot down and then a thousand foot back up? And the, the garrison, that, that means 2,000 men. You mean let's go over there and fight them together, just the two of us? Sure, why not? Okay. So they do. They head out, and remember, they've got all their armor on, and this is not like carbon fiber or uh, bulletproof stuff that, that we have today that's really lightweight technology. It's probably more like iron, steel, shields, swords, maybe a bow and arrow, and they head off. If you ever go to Dubuque, the cliffs there that rise above the Mississippi are around 200 feet above the level of the water. Jonathan and his armor bearer descended over three times that height and then ascended. And it wasn't sheer like the cliffs there are or like what we think of when we think of a sheer cliff, but it was not easy. And a thousand feet up, is a pretty difficult task when you're carrying 60 pounds of excess on you. And so they did that. A thousand feet down, a thousand feet up. Over two miles in between where they were staying on the gorge and where the Philistines were. And then when they get to the top, there are a group of 20 Philistines. And it says that there was about enough width on the land that they were on that cropped out from the rest of the land that it was about half of what oxen would plow. So just enough, really, for two people face-to-face to have combat. And they killed 20 men. I've never killed anybody, but I've wrestled, and that's exhausting. There's a reason that wrestling periods only last a couple minutes. And I think that once you got to man two or three, you would probably be pretty well plum-tuckered. But he continued. Then... After they kill these 20 men, all of a sudden, the Philistine garrison, the other 2,000 or so men, they're, for some reason or another, by the grace of God, they go into chaos. And now Saul, with his men, joins once they see what's going on across the gorge. And they start to pursue. And then Jonathan and his armor bearer pursue. And they go basically from here to about Mount Horeb. And this is not over from here to Mount Horeb type topography. This would be more like if you were over by Devil's Lake and you were going up and down by the cliffs. That's kind of what they were walking over. And they don't have sweet Solomon shoes to wear, probably had open-toed sandals. But they continued on. And they chased the Philistines into a well-known forest where the Philistines knew they could hide. And inside this forest, it's no longer there, there were these trees that would have these gigantic beehives hanging from them. And at the right time of year, there would be so much honey that it would be falling down on the ground. Now, we know this story because of what Saul said about his men, that they're not supposed to eat. But that's not what I'm trying to draw out here and what this man was trying to draw out, Mike Bullmore. What it says is that Jonathan saw the honey, that it was good for eating, and he dipped his staff in it, And he ate it. And do you know what words it says? Verse 8, Psalm 19. It enlightened his eyes. 
Same words. Same exact words. When David says that the law revives the soul, when David says that it makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, it's righteous altogether, it's worth more than gold, he's trying to draw a very clear picture. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes all day long, and then you get that taste of honey. That's better than coffee at 6 a.m. when you've been up with your sick kids all night long. It's better than ice cream when it's 95 degrees outside in the middle of July, 100% humidity. It's life-giving. So look at your week behind you. Ask questions of yourself. What did I run to? What did I seek refuge in? The reality is that the nature of God is that He is glorious. And this, a lot of people misuse this. And they treat it as a list of rules or ought to's that if you don't, you're in serious trouble. That's part of the story. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is that such great joy satisfaction, hope, peace, love, awe can be found by reading what's contained within here that it will ruin us for God's glory. It will make these other things that we chase after be what they really are. Like Jeremiah says, broken cisterns can't hold water. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that your word is good and that it can be trusted. Thank you that David saw this in all of the abundance that he got to experience, that he was able to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that he was able to say that the, the, uh, this all brings life to us, this word. And thank you that Jesus came and, and showed us the most beautiful picture and description of who you are by living life here on earth. Thank you for creation. Thank you for the word. and Thank you for your son. Praise you for watching over us, God, and, and for caring for us, giving us tastes of heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.